0: Let us pray. Once more almighty and gracious God, we come to you and we pray that you would hear us, that your spirit would guide us in our prayers and that you would receive our prayers for the sake of your son Jesus. And that you father would draw draw near to renew us and to cause us to know you more deeply. And that you would send us forth as your people, children adopted through your spirit on account of your Son, and that we would make you known and what you have accomplished for salvation through Jesus by the Spirit dwelling in our midst. And guide us evermore, O Lord, that we might love you and please you in all that we do. This we do ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said there at the beginning of our service, it's Trinity Sunday. The Sunday where we talk about the mystery of the Trinity, where we hear about the mystery of the Trinity, where we come to realize just how deeply enmeshed this doctrine about the reality and nature of God is enmeshed in our prayer book tradition, is enmeshed thoroughgoingly within Christianity itself. That is part and parcel of Christianity. To be a Christian is to believe the Trinity, and to believe in the Trinity is to be a Christian. For what would you believe in such a strange and odd doctrine as the Trinity if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God who has died and been raised for our salvation? But alongside that, trying to wrestle and understand with the Trinity took the church hundreds of years to find the right language, the right words, to bring out the reality that Scripture was teaching us. So much so that it makes me have a headache sometimes to think about it. Or maybe I have three heads with one ache throughout all three. Or maybe it's just one head with three multiple aches throughout it. I don't know. But nonetheless, it gives me a headache to try to wrestle with this idea of the Trinity. But it's there. It's true. It is part and parcel of the reality of who God is. So much so. That the Trinity defines the gospel because the gospel reveals the Trinity. To understand the gospel, one must truly delve into the Trinity itself. We'll never comprehend fully, we'll never completely apprehend the meaning of the Trinity. We'll always see something mysterious when we look at it, even in eternity future. When all things have been renewed and we are brought into fullness of fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit without sin being in the way, we'll spend the eternity delving the depths of what it means for God to be three persons and yet one God. We'll remain falling more and more deeply in love with the reality of who God is and how His being of three persons accomplish salvation on our behalf. But as we dig into that, I want us to step back for a moment and to think about what we don't believe about God. What we don't believe, one God or three gods. When we think about the Trinity, it's easy to fall into three traps. Maybe there's four traps, but really it's primarily three when we speak of the Trinity. The traps are what I call extreme monotheism, tritheism, Or the idea of created beings. Now, to be sure, we Christians are monotheists. We believe in only one God. That's what monotheist means. One who believes in one God. But within regular monotheism, there is a reality. There is a recognition that there is a depth to who God is. There is a multiplicity, a plurality, a complexity to our understanding of who God is. Not that God is... A complex being made of multiple parts, he is spirit and of only one. But there's something unique about God when we study regular monotheism, that there's there's room for the mystery. With extreme monotheism, it absolutely hinges on the reality that there is only one person in the one nature of God. And that creates a problem, doesn't it? If God is only one person, then what do we do with the Son and the Holy Spirit who throughout all of Scripture are given divine prerogatives? are given worship, are spoken of as coming from the Father. One way that this was explained in the early church says that God exists in different modes of being, that He wears different masks depending on what kind of activity He's going to do. On one hand, He acts as the Father when He creates all things, and so He has His Father mask on. He's in the mode of the Father, but then when He comes to earth to die for our sins and take on human nature is Jesus. He puts on the sun mask. He enters into the mode of being the sun. But then the sun ascends and has promised to send someone named the Spirit. And so then God changes into the Spirit and comes as the Spirit to dwell amongst us. He can't be all three at once because in this understanding, this extreme monotheism, there is only one person in the one nature. The fancier name of that is just simply modalism, that God has different modes of being. He has to behave in different ways because he can't be all three persons at the same time. One video that I was watching called this the Clark Kent problem. Clark Kent and Superman can't be in the same place because they're both one and the same person. So for the father to be the son, he has to jump into his proverbial phone booth and put on his son cape, as this one commentator said just like Clark Kent has to jump into his phone booth in order to become Superman, so to speak, and puts on his cape. And when he does that, Clark Kent vanishes. Clark Kent is no more in that moment as Superman steps forth. And that's what modalism says about God, that as the Son comes forth, the Father ceases to be, because the Father is the Son, is the Holy Spirit. And so the Father can only appear as the Father, and then he has to change to be the Son. He can only appear as the Father or the Son, Or the Spirit, but never is he all three at once. And so that's modalism, extreme monotheism. On the other end of the spectrum is tritheism, polytheism, the explicit idea that there are three gods because there are three persons who are given the works of God. And tritheism is just a blatant polytheism which Scripture utterly rejects. Tritheism says, well, we can't understand how one essence can be three persons simultaneously, that these three persons can coexist for all of eternity, that they are co-glorious with one another, and so there must really be three gods who share some essence, yes, just like humans share the same essence of being human, but we are distinct individuals. We are not just distinct. We are separate beings of which I can exist without any of you here in this room. Any of you in this room can exist without me. We are not inseparable from one another. And that's what tritheism says about God, is that there are three gods who are so separate from one another that they could ultimately exist without each other. But like I said, Scripture continually turns against this idea. Throughout Scripture, it is only one God. There is none like Him. There cannot be three gods because there is only one And if there are three gods and scripture is not telling us the truth, then God is not speaking the truth when he says, I am the only one true God. There are none like me who tells the future before it happens, who knows all things, who is all places at all times, the one true God. Tritheism cuts against that with this idea that there are ultimately three gods who are individuals who are separate from one another which leads us to the modern day aspect of that. You've probably never heard of this, but I've been studying it this week called Social Trinitarianism. It was a new way of understanding the Trinity in the 20th century, and it errs toward this tritheism because it defines the persons of God as being so distinct and so separate from one another that they have three separate wills and three separate personalities, and therefore, ultimately, pushing it too hard to the extreme become three separate beings, That there is no single essence that binds God into one being, to one nature. But it stresses so much on the Trinity, on the persons within the Trinity, that it errs toward tritheism, that it divides the Trinity. And thus the Trinity could be seen as working against itself when you do that. But there is one other error that we fall into. And this is the error that sparked this entire debate about the Trinity. Good old Arius from the fourth century developed the idea that Jesus was created. Jesus was the first created being along with the Spirit, that they're the first creations of God the Father, so that he thus gave them the status of being like himself, that they could be worshipped like him, but they're not eternal beings. An example would be if you looked at the Son, the Son is the Father. And the rays of light coming from the sun are the sun. They don't exist forever. They are created by the sun. And then the sun the sun gives off those rays of light. And those rays of light create heat, which is the Holy Spirit. The rays of light are who create the heat that originates in the sun. But it's not one sun. There is only one sun that is creating these effects on the world, on creation. And that's how, how Arius understood Jesus, that There was a time when the Son was not, as one of His songs. He wrote hymns praising the glory of Jesus for being a created being. Praising the Father for being so great and glorious that He would share and let one be like Him, but not Him. Again, this cuts against everything that's in Scripture because of how we understand who God is. God says that he shares his glory with no other and Arius says that he has to share his glory with created beings. Scripture says he does not share his worship with created beings. But again, Arius says he must share his worship with created beings. That which is rightfully his, Scripture declares, he does not share with creatures. But Arius says he must do that. And every week when we say the creed, the Nicene Creed was written as a direct response to Arius' heresy, to his teaching that rocked the church, that broiled the church, that almost broke the church in half, that it spent almost a century going back and forth between Nicene Orthodox Christianity and Arianism. And then in 381, it was more or less settled and the church didn't err toward Arianism anymore. It had other errors that it had to battle after that. But nonetheless, Arianism is a real thing that when we look at teachers and false teachers, Jehovah's Witnesses, they say that Jesus is a created being. It's one thing we have to realize. They believe Jesus is a created being. Thus, Jesus is not equal to the Father. He is not in the Father. And the Father is not in Him because Jesus is created. But what do we believe then about the Trinity? What we believe about the Trinity is espoused throughout Scripture. We believe that the Trinity is one God and yet three persons. Three persons and one God. I'm going to avoid getting too technical here today, but we we have to wrap this all together because of the language that we have to use. Scripture reveals the Trinity. It says the Father is worshipped. It says the Son is worshipped. It says the Holy Spirit is worshipped. It says the Father is Creator. The Son is Creator. The Holy Spirit is Creator. It gives these prerogatives To all three persons. And so all three persons must truly be the one God. Scripture puts that forth and Scripture reveals it to us. It's hidden and mysterious in the Old Testament as we hear of the angel of the Lord receiving worship. We hear of the angel of the Lord speaking for God because he says he is God. But then at other times he represents God. We hear of the Holy Spirit coming down and alighting over creation as all things are being made. We see the Spirit being sent out and worshipped by the people, empowering the people to do good and glorious works. And so God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit revealed through Scripture. And the church had to wrestle with that and had to have philosophical words to describe that, to explain the reality of what Scripture teaches. But there is one scriptural word that helps us to grasp the Trinity. It shows up in our old translations of John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Modern translations leave out the word begotten because they did word studies and some modern translators became convinced that it doesn't relate back to the word in the Greek that means only and begotten. They think that it means only and unique. And so, too many modern translations have lost this word begotten because that safeguards the reality of who Jesus is, we realize. Now, Scripture can still be read and understood to be saying Jesus is truly God without that word begotten, but I think it's very important, and I wish our translators would put it back into Scripture to remember that little word begotten because when someone is begotten of the Father, of a Father, they share an essence with that Father. My dad is a human, and therefore, because I am begotten from my dad, I too am a human being. I came into existence because I was begotten, but Jesus does not. The Son of God does not become into existence because God is an eternal being. And so that begottenness does two things. It says that Jesus has the same essence as the Father just as a human son shares the same essence with his Father. But when it comes to a God who has always existed, There was never a time when the Son didn't exist. And so it is an eternal begottenness of the Son. The Son is eternally begotten from eternity past, always and forever. There was never a time when the Father was not without His Son, and there was never a time when the Son was not without His Father, because God is an eternal being, which of course breaks our brains. What does eternality mean exactly? It doesn't just mean timelessness. It doesn't just mean existing without end but it means existing forever and always before anything else existed, God was, God is, and God is the one to come. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so begottenness of the Son means the Son is truly God of one nature, of one being, with the Father. As the Athanasian Creed says later on, that we'll say this day that the Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Ghost eternal But there are not three Eternals, there is only one Eternal. That is what it means for God to share the one essence in the three persons, that each person subsists and exists with the singular essence of who God is, of what it is to be God. But they are not separate individuals, there is only one essence in the three persons. And the three persons thus share one will with one another, that they share one action with one another. As one acts, the others act. As one wills, the others will. One of the struggles that we have when we think of God being three persons is our modern definition of person as an individual who has his own distinct will and can act autonomously from others. That's not what we mean when we speak of persons within the Godhead because God is an eternal being and different. We are separate individuals. God... And His three persons are not separate individuals. They are distinct. The Father being unbegotten. The Son being begotten. And the Spirit proceeding. Those are the three individual attributes of each person of the Trinity. The Father is the unbegotten one. The Son is the begotten one who is begotten of the Father. And the Spirit is the one who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And thus, all three are God all three are equally God. If you put them together, you have the same amount of God as if, you, as if when you look at them individually. There is only one God. And John teaches us that. Throughout his Gospel, he teaches us that. He teaches that from the very first verse of his Gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There is never a time when the Word was not. And there is never a time when the Word was not God. There was never a time when the Word was not with God. John begins right away with that mystery of the begottenness of the Son. That the Son has always been with the Father. And likewise, the Spirit has always been with the Father, who John brings out thoroughly here in John 3, when he says that we must be born of water and the Spirit, connecting it all back to baptism, just like Matthew 28 does with the Trinity. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit claim us in baptism. And thus, we must be born of water and the Spirit. And the Spirit gives us new birth that we would go forth into the new life that is God's life. Because Jesus later will say that He gives eternal life, the life which He had with the Father. He gives freely to us in salvation. And who gives us that life but the Holy Spirit pours it into us. And thus, only God can bring us that life. And thus, the Spirit is God. The Spirit brings the life of God into us by the work of Jesus. The Father wills this and is desirous for this to be and freely gives His eternal life into us who believe. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together not only in creation but also in our redemption and salvation that they share one will desiring to save us, desiring to give to us forgiveness, to give to us the righteousness of Jesus, to give to us a new kind of eternal life. An eternal life that flows out of the very essence and heart of God Himself. That flows and exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A life and love that exists between them, always and forever. And that gets poured out upon us by the power of the Spirit dwelling with us. And so what we believe is that God is... One God, and yet, three persons. One nature, and three persons. Not three beings, not three separate beings, three separate people, but three persons who subsist and exist in the one essence of the nature of God. That this nature doesn't exist apart from the three persons, but is the three persons. And it's a beautiful, wonderful, mysterious doctrine that is Absolutely necessary to the gospel, because it is who God is in and of Himself, and the gospel reveals God's actions in the world. And when then we have to work our way back to God in and of Himself, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all perfectly co-equal with one another in their nature as God, and that is what Scripture continually reveals to us throughout. But you may ask, why? Why have a Sunday talking about the Trinity? Why does it even matter? Why can't we just say, well, Jesus, of course He's the Son of God. What that means doesn't matter as long as we can say He's the Son of God and the Holy Spirit is God. But what does it matter if we don't understand that the Holy Spirit is an actual person within the Godhead? But why can't the Holy Spirit just be a force that enables us to do the things that God wants us to do? Why can't the Holy Spirit just be an it instead of a he? It matters because this is who God is. It matters because God, as John will tell us in his first epistle, is love. Love doesn't exist as an essence without there being a multiplicity of persons for that love to be shared amongst. Love is always self-giving. I'm not talking about romantic love or friendship love or even familial love, but I'm talking about the caritas of God, the self-giving love. Love. That is who God is. For John says love is defined by God in giving His Son to die for sinners. That God is love and He shows forth His love by giving the Son to reveal to us His love that exists from eternity past within Himself. That the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father and the Father loves the Spirit and the Spirit loves the Father and the Spirit loves the Son as the Son loves the Spirit. And that there is a self-giving love that exists in between the persons of the Trinity flowing back and forth Amongst them, as the, Spirit, as the Father loves the Son, the Spirit sees the Father love the Son and vice versa. The Spirit observes the love between Father and Son just as the Son observes the love between Father and Spirit. And the Father observes the love between the Son and the Spirit as they all go back and forth in a loving communion of being. It matters because it is all about love because that is the true love of God, the self-giving, outpouring love of the Father for the Son, for the Holy Spirit for the Father, going back and forth, spirating within Himself from eternity past, and it overflows into creation that God chooses to create all things. God does not need to create in order to express love. If God had to create in order to express love, then He is dependent upon His creation. But God is utterly and radically independent. He needs nothing but Himself. For within Himself is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons and one God, but then God chooses and wills to create all things and then wills to redeem all things in the Son. That the Son comes to show forth the love that exists from eternity past within the Godhead before humanity by dying for humanity's sins in order to redeem all things. And in Jesus coming down, who is truly God, He lifts humanity human nature up into the divine being. He lifts humanity up into the divine essence because God takes on human nature and the Son becoming Jesus and the Son being born of Mary. And the Son becoming incarnate, human nature is bound up with the divine essence in the Son. And the Son ascends. The Son returns to heaven and takes that very human nature into the very Godhead, into the throne room of the Father. And there presents humanity to the Father in all of His perfection and glory. And then God pours out the Holy Spirit. The Father sends the Holy Spirit through the Son. God Himself comes to dwell in each and every one of us. Not just an ordinary power of God, but God Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit dwells within us, each of us. That we would be united to Christ and thus united to the humanity that is in heaven. For the Spirit to not be God means that we cannot be united to Christ. For the Spirit to not truly be God, we cannot receive the love of God through Christ into our hearts. The divine, eternal, perfect love that the Father has for the Son comes to us through the Spirit's dwelling within us because He has observed it and He has received it Himself. And thus we can receive the very divine love of God because the Spirit dwells within us, binding us all together, not merely as individuals, but that we would become a great and glorious temple before the Lord that God Himself dwells in by the Spirit. The Spirit comes to be with us. And that's why it matters that we understand the Trinity as one God and three persons who are co-equal in glory and co-equal in eternity and co-equal in equality. That they are all equal with one another. One is not greater than the others. And the three together are not greater than the individual's. It's the mystery of the Trinity and it matters because salvation itself hinges on God being a Trinity. Jesus must truly be God in order to take away our sins completely from the Father, from before the Father's face. The Holy Spirit must truly be God in order to bring that forgiveness into us and to bring us into the full and complete presence of the Father and the Son. And so, the Trinity is revealed by the Gospel because the Trinity is determines the Gospel. The Trinity defines the Gospel. God acting in Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit defines that God is going to save us and redeem us and give to us Himself. Because the Spirit dwelling in us means God Himself is in us and with us and beside us and guiding us always. Just as the Son is God Himself who died upon the cross to remove our sins, in order that we would be redeemed and forgiven. And the Father is God Himself, for He is the One who sends the Son and sends the Spirit in order to accomplish these works in us and for us. The Father loves us as the Son loves us as the Spirit loves us. And the Father desires for our renewal by sending the Son, and through the Son, the Spirit, to renew our hearts and our minds. And so let us fall more deeply in love with our Trinitarian God. Because it matters that He is a Trinity. It matters that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in glory and majesty with one another. Because our salvation depends on it. Our renewal depends on it. Our life depends on it. That God is a Trinity who is love and pours that love on us because He is a Trinity of persons within the one being of God. And so the mystery is spoken. I'm sure we're all a little more confused, but I hope that we're all also encouraged to realize that God Himself has dwelt amongst us, that God Himself dwells in us by the union of the Spirit coming to dwell with us by His being poured out. So may we rejoice and may we walk forward knowing that God Himself is with us always and forever because He is a trinity of persons. And yet, one God, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen.